This podcast is brought to you by ClearBridge Investments. Meet an evolving economy confidently with ClearBridge Active Equities, the foundation of a resilient portfolio. ClearBridge, a Franklin Templeton company. Go to clearbridge.com to learn more. Hello, and welcome to The Way Forward, our new weekly interview. I'm Jack Otterbarron's editor-at-large, and I have the distinct pleasure of welcoming a rock star of the financial advisory world, downtown Josh Brown. Uh, Josh, it, it's almost weird to be asking somebody, how are you doing? Because the answer is kind of self-evident, but um, within the reality of what we're all dealing with right now, how are you doing? Uh, not great, to be honest with you. I'm, uh, this is actually this is like a, a nice break for me to talk to somebody and... Uh, and and kind of talk about what's going on in the firm and stuff because I don't have like a, a shrink or or a psychologist. But I got to be honest, um, um, I, I uh, I'm struggling with this kind of leadership thing because never in a million years did I ever think that I would be the CEO of a firm, and then I definitely never thought I'd be the CEO of a firm through a pandemic. And yeah. I've read tons of books about leadership and CEOs and all that stuff and founders, but I never thought that I would be in this position where I have 30, 32 uh, employees and their families relying on the decisions I make and then 900 something households uh, clients. So I'm not sleeping well and I, uh, I recognize that my problems are very small compared to things that other people are going through. And it's just, I'm, I'm having a, a hard time. Uh, well, I suspect that you are probably doing a better job than you think you are, uh, just because the challenge is so overwhelming. Uh, we'll tell we'll us say. How, we'll how you're dealing with it. Um, what, what, what have you learned in this? What techniques are you using? Uh, let's start with your employees as, as a leader of, of, as you say, 32 people. The good news is, um, thank God everyone's healthy. And we don't, we don't have anyone within the firm that's dealing with like a medical uh, issue as part of this challenge. So uh, I'm very, very grateful for that. Um, I also have really, really talented people that I can rely on. And we make a lot of decisions jointly. Um, I've got partners. I've got people who are in charge of various aspects of running a wealth management firm. And I get a lot of real-time feedback from people. And we use a lot of technology. And the good news is that we were born in the cloud. The firm started in 2013. Half hour employees are remote anyway, the people I see once a year. So in some ways, um, we were built for something like this, not that we ever could have conceived it, but it's kind of second nature to half of the people that work for us. They're accustomed to checking in on Slack, Zoom, FaceTime, Google Hangouts. We use all these tools every day. So if you could find a silver lining, I guess that would be it. Gotcha. You got 900 clients, about a billion dollars in AUM. Is that right? I think it's between 1.2 and 1.3, depending on what Apple is doing right now. Uh, <laughs> gotcha. Something like that. First of all, are they, have they been as technologically savvy as you are, or have you been given a lot of Zoom lessons? No, I, I have I have advisors that are technologically inclined to begin with. It's how they found us. They're they're following us on podcasts and social media. And they all, they, on a daily basis, they're talking to clients on video, more, more so than I ever was. So if, if anyone learned anything from each other, it's me seeing how they already interact and getting into the flow. What's the biggest surprise of this whole thing from a client standpoint? So I was thinking about this the other day. I was talking with uh, my director of research, Michael Batnick, um, who writes a pretty well-known blog. And we were talking about what separates this from every other bear market. And I've seen more than he has, but what separates this from a client perspective 
um, is that when I ask my advisors what their conversations are like, they're saying like almost every conversation starts with the health and safety aspect, which you could not say. Like in 2011, in the fall of 2011, there was a 21% bear market that was it contained inside of two months. So it was very similar to this. It was rapid. It was brutal. And... There was no other thing other than the fact that the stock markets were falling. Like there, there weren't other discussions happening. In this case, people are like, well, let me tell you what's happening. My uncle was in the hospital, my cousin, you know, in this particular bear market, it's almost like what's happening with stocks are beside the point. So I don't even say it's good or bad. I'm just saying it is the, the, the thing that preoccupies clients, not how much is my account up today or down today. Well, uh, there's, yeah, there's a lot of threads there. I mean, first of all, uh, the humanity that you're talking about, I really hope that is something that survives this crisis. Uh, but also that calls on you and, and your employees and, and also, frankly, every, all your peers in the business. Uh, that's an EQ thing, right? You know, that this is not about their the dollars and cents. It's it's about financial advisor as shrink, which which really in some ways is a more important role than than managing the portfolio, or at least it is equally important um, to help people through these things. Uh, what are the common questions that you're getting from clients? Are they in the how am I going to survive this from a financial perspective, or is it more hey what's the buying opportunity? What are you hearing from them? The the number one question that we've got. Uh, ben Carlson, who is the uh, head of institutional asset management at my firm and works with some of the foundations and, um, and institutional clients, he wrote a, a letter addressing it. The number one question was, how do you explain the disconnect between the economy being shut down and the S&P 500 down only um, 15% from its high? Like That is the number one thing that clients want us to answer. So I think Ben wrote a beautiful letter last week. And um, one of the main points that he made was that oftentimes the stock market's reaction to something is either better or worse than the thing itself. And the example he points out is that GDP really only fell like 5% during the great financial crisis. A lot of people don't know that. Um, GDP contracted by about 5%, which is a recession, but the S&P 500 fell 57%. So who was right? The stock market or the like, like in other words, the stock market overreact to that? I don't think you can make that case. So now we're going to have a much deeper contraction in GDP. They're talking about a 35% contraction in GDP for Q2. Think about that number. So does the stock market then, by 2008 logic, have to be down 90%? And I think we're figuring out that the answer is no. So it's very tough to draw... To, to take this linear approach to saying, well, if GDP only contracts by 5%, markets shouldn't be down 57%. Yes, they should, because earnings were down 96% in, in the GFC. So now in this crisis, how much will earnings contract versus how much will the economy contract? It might end up being the opposite. We might be down 15% in earnings for the S&P because of the makeup of the S&P is so heavily skewed toward companies that are doing just fine. And we might have a way deeper economic contraction. So that's the biggest question clients ask. And I think we're answering it with data rather than with feelings. 
Gotcha. Uh, well, that is an outstanding question. It is yet another reminder that the economy and the market are very different things, uh, which we sometimes forget. I, I want to get more on your thoughts about, about what's going to happen in the market and the economy, but, but maybe for background, we should step back and, and, and have you tell us a little bit about Josh Brown. Uh, your Twitter handle is The Reformed Broker, named after your blog. Uh, how did you become The Reformed Broker, and, uh, and how does that uh, inform your approach to a, an advisory firm? So I think it's really important to for people that don't know my background to remind them that I am not uh, I don't consider myself to be a, a special miraculous businessman or a brilliant investor. I, I'm someone that learned a lot from failure. The first ten years of my career were spent at a succession of uh, terrible brokerage firms, um, but I don't regret that experience now because I learned everything not to do. And I learned it the hard way by working for people who repeatedly did things that you're not supposed to do. And so I wrote a book. My catharsis uh, was putting that book together a year or two after I left the retail brokerage side and became an investment advisor. Backstage Wall Street. Correct. Thank you so much. Um, So that book came out in uh, 2012. I I wrote it in 11 and I had left the brokerage industry in 2010. And I was one of the fortunate people who get to meet their hero, and it turns out their hero needs help. So Barry Ritholtz was someone whose columns I had been reading for years and helped me understand the financial crisis that we were living through in 08, 09. I think I had a better handle on it to talk with clients than most people um, did, and that helped me survive. And uh, I, I got the opportunity to meet Barry, and Barry needed help. Barry had the opposite problem I had. Um, my my problem was I knew how to uh, work with clients and help people. Nobody wanted my problem was nobody cared what I thought. Nobody was looking for for my help. Uh, Barry had the opposite problem. He had never worked directly with clients. He was always an advisor to advisors. He was like a brokerage firm chief strategist. So he would tell FAs what to do, and then they would not listen. So uh, we joined forces in 2010, and and um, started a practice together, which then ultimately led to launching the firm in, in 2013. But um, so so the reason I give you that answer of, you know, who is Josh Brown? I'm really, um, I'm someone that got very, very lucky. Um, and I guess if you could say I have any talent, it's recognizing an opportunity and jumping on it. Um, but I, I, I don't regard myself as like someone who, who anyone should follow in my footsteps. My path toward where I am was a very strange and difficult uh, path, and, and I'm really lucky that things turn out the way they did. Well, I do want to point out that you're talking to me from Nassau County, uh, which is where the Wolf of Wall Street, the real Wolf of Wall Street, uh, was uh, holding his boiler room many years ago. Uh, yeah. So I suspect you weren't quite in that deep, but um, but you have become a fiduciary. Yeah, all that, all that stuff took place uh, a few years before I got into the industry. Like the Belfort's heyday was like the early 90s. Um, so it was a little bit before my time, but I knew I knew people that had worked for those guys and set up firms subsequently. And uh, you know Jordan's Jordan's tactics, he didn't really invent them. Uh, they were invented by a guy at Shearson Lehman in the in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. The first people to do telemarketing for stocks. They were actually they were they were Lehman guys uh, in the 55 huh. Water Street office and on Madison Avenue. Um, there was a book called Telephone Selling in the 90s, um, and that's where the, the, the boiler rooms then took that approach 
and then twisted it to, toward evil ends. So, but originally, the idea of cold calling people and pitching stocks was very normal, and it's how people bought stocks. There was no online. There, you know, there, there were very few discount brokerages. Um, it wasn't until the Long Island guys said, hey, you know what? We can do this, but instead of pitching people Bristol Myers, let's pitch them penny stocks that we have 30% of the float in our... So um, I, don't, I don't know if a lot of people really understand that, but uh, yes, that <laughs> culture was prevalent on Long Island, but I was still in high school at that time. Uh, gotcha. And, and a lot of our listeners, I mean, some of the older uh, advisors, they were not selling penny stocks. They were selling the Bristol Myers, but they started as cold callers, and that's how they've built um, great fiduciary businesses now. So certainly that is a basis for the business in some way. I, I want to get, though, to whenever people hear about Ritholtz and Josh Brown, uh, they think media empire. So just to be clear, you alone have over a million Twitter followers. Uh, you're on CNBC's Halftime Report twice a week. You've got a blog, The Reform Broker. Um, you now have a podcast and YouTube channel called The Compound. Uh, and of course, you wrote that book. So this sounds a little bit to a media guy like me as something approaching a full-time job. And yet all of those things are your hobby. Uh, so how do, you, how do those work together? How do you have time to uh, manage your business and your clients properly? So there's a couple answers to that question. The first is that the 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 media side of the firm is is not distinct from uh, what we're doing for clients. Our, our clients are among the people consuming that content. So if you think about a traditional advisor, let's say they spend half their day talking to existing clients, um, we do too, but it's the medium we're talking to them through. So we have clients that you know they read the same headlines you and I do. And they get nervous and they want to know what's their firm's take on it. If, if, if you're dealing with a financial advisor, you say to yourself as a client, like, I don't want to bother him or her right now. <laughs> uh, like this, this, this thing is making me nervous. Uh, whatever's going on with, for example, last week, the USO and oil. And do I need to worry about that? Eh, I, don't want to, I don't want to call my advisor. Our clients know that they can access what we think about the events of the day 24-7. We have nine people doing um, public-facing content. Some of them are full-time financial advisors, and some of them are research people. And we are putting out content all the time in various formats, doing a lot of research to generate that content, reading a ton, and then distilling all that for the end user. And many of those end users are clients. So it's not like, hey, we're a financial advisor, and then also we're doing all this content. It's all one thing. And I think what we look like is actually the future of the industry. And most firms uh, that are successful 10 years from now will, will look more like us um, and less like um, the traditional financial advisor of, let's say, 20 years ago. How do they get there? I, I know that a lot of advisory firms with a far larger AUM than Ritholtz uh, would love to have a tiny percentage of your uh, media footprint. Uh, any advice for, for somebody in your business who's just not in the public uh, discussion as you are? So you can't delegate it. It, it, the founders of the firm have to be involved. You can't like be like, oh, I'm going to hire a content guy. It's you know, I, I think that's number one. Number two, you can't you can't fake it or do it for clicks. You have to really love it and care about what you're putting out there. I don't say to myself, oh, it's Monday, I better get a blog post ready. 
I'm literally writing because I'm compelled to talk about my opinions about things that are happening. It's not usually not my own opinion. If you actually read my blog regularly, you'll realize most of what I'm doing is linking out to other sources, including Barron's, that I think have a good take on something or that taught me something. The blog started in 08, uh, 2008, and it was my attempt to understand what's happening and to treat it as a learning exercise for myself. Uh, I don't know that a lot of financial advisory firms, to answer your question directly, have a, a founder or a CEO who's willing to refer to themselves as a student who's willing to say, hey, I don't know a lot about this, so I'm reading these two sources and you should too. That's what most of my content is. I'm not, I don't, I don't, I don't present myself as I have all the answers for how the world works. So how many people in finance are, I don't want to use the term humble, but are maybe, maybe have the humility to say, I don't have all the answers, but I'm learning and you can learn alongside me. Probably not a lot. So maybe that's uh, an edge that I have. And uh, I have a lot of people w doing the same thing alongside with me. It's not just me. So I have a full-time video director and editor. How many RIAs have somebody full-time working on video? Probably not a lot. So we do have these edges. We do have personalities that people like to follow. Um, and then all the personalities together, I guess you could call it a, a network effect, so to speak. So Blair writes a really good piece on municipal bonds, and then I link to it. And then maybe later on in the week, we do a video about it. So that, that kind of network effect is helpful. Not many firms have even one person who can do engaging content, let alone nine or 10. And I, I think your typical month sees about 1.7 million page views of, of, of that content. So that is something. Uh, humility is fascinating. We could do a whole discussion on that. Uh, I will say that is not the first word that jumps to mind when I think about uh, men in the financial business. Uh, the, the female um, uh, you know, financial you know business. You know why, to. though? Because it's, I guess, a little bit of an old school mentality, but there, it, there, there is this thing where um, when you're – especially when you're selling yourself or you're in sales and you say like, how am I going to get somebody to give me their money to invest if I don't act like I have the answers they don't have? Like – and then so, – so where – how are we different than that? How do we get a, around that problem, which is a real problem, right? Like if, if, if I'm a lawyer, someone comes to me and says, what do you think? Am I going to win this case or not? Can't be like – I don't know, flip a coin. You have to say yes. It doesn't work with a doctor either. Yeah, it doesn't work. I think what we do, and it's not that unique in practice, but in the way we present it, it is unique. Because we say, look, we're not a firm with an S&P 500 year-end target. If that's important to you, that's okay. Here's all the data showing why that's total bullshit and the market never hits people's targets reliably and it's not a good way to invest. So – it, we almost like take pride in how little we know. And the, Jason Zweig said this, and, and I found that, that I agree with it. The, the longer I'm doing this, the more I realize I still have to learn. It's not the other way around. So we do have some bedrock principles of investing. They are true no matter what in our view. So we have an investment philosophy. We're not throwing our hands up, but our investment philosophy is to build durable portfolios precisely because so much is unknowable. And that's not attractive to some people. There are people that they, they, they look at that and they say, no, 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 I want somebody who knows what's going to happen. Sorry. That's, it's great for us because that saves us a lot of time in onboarding that client who then has unrealistic expectations and then ends up moving on. So I think the clients we do attract are enlightened 
and they understand the limitations of what we know about the future and that they're okay with this approach of diversification, low cost, low tax, uh, trying to minimize mistakes rather than trying to maximize um, potential upside all the time. And uh, it works out really well. We end up with smart advisors who can explain that and really, really great clients who are more interested in, um, I think, financial planning and wholesome asset management rather than somebody doing miracles for them. So uh, in case listeners haven't guessed it by now, you guys are indexers and I want to talk about portfolio construction, but one more question about your practice. Your fee structure, as I understand it, is fairly typical until month 36. What happens then? That's right, Jack. So um, we came up with this thing called Milestone Rewards where we said to ourselves, how can we incentivize the best possible behavior on the part of our clients and how can we make them feel that they're earning rewards for being part of this process of sticking to a financial plan and a portfolio tied to it. So we do something called milestone rewards where in the 36th month or the third year anniversary, we figure by then the client has seen statistically at least one or two 10% drops in the S&P. They've seen volatile markets. They've seen uptrending markets. They've seen bull market. You know, so we say like by that point, the client has probably experienced the entire the, the entire cornucopia of uh, fear and greed that the market has to offer. And through that, they have remained faithful to their financial plan. They haven't called us in a panic. They haven't called us, why aren't I making more money like all these people in Tesla? Like they've, they've gen- generally, they've absorbed our message and we know it at that point. So we say, okay, at that point, we lower their fees systematically um, and forever so that um, those clients have earned the right to be paying us a lower fee. It's good business for us because those clients end up being extremely sticky. They, they feel good that they've earned something with their own behavior. It's not loyalty to us. It's fidelity to their own plan. And they're somewhat lower maintenance once they've gotten through those first three years. So we can justify why, why should they be paying less than a client who's in year one. So it's been wildly successful. People love it. When the advisor gets to call that client and say, I just wanted to congratulate you. You made it through three years. We're now lowering your fee forever. You've earned this yourself. I didn't do it for you. You did it. It's just a tremendous moment in, in the advisor-client relationship. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Uh, you know, uh, let's, let's start then with, um, with, with how you, you, you approach portfolio construction. What are you thinking when you do that? And then we should also talk about your, your new offering, which is a robo. But, but um, what, is a, what is a, I realize there's no such thing as a typical portfolio. They're customized. But generally, what does it look like? So I should, I should start by saying that I'm not even on the investment committee. Okay. Um, the firm's investment committee is five people. It's Barry Ritholtz as CIO, um, Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson, both of whom I mentioned. They're both chartered financial analysts. There's a gentleman named Dan McConlog, who um, is the head of uh, corporate retirement plans, 401ks for us. And then Blair Ducanet, who's also one of our bloggers. And uh, she's both a certified financial planner and a chartered uh, financial analyst. So she's she's actually the only CFP on the, the investment committee, and I am not on it. So I know what's going on. I get notes. Um, I sometimes can interject my opinions and ask them to discuss a topic. But what they're essentially doing is two things. The first is overseeing the proprietary strategies that we run internally. Um, and second, 
making sure that they're on top of the SMAs from other asset managers that we utilize for things like tax-free muni bonds, uh, et cetera. So uh, the investment committee meets on a regular basis. Um, I'm updated as needed, but our portfolio construction, um, all of it stems from the philosophy that I outlined earlier, durability, diversification, as low cost as possible within reason, as low fee as possible within reason, um, and then trying to do things that don't require us to be extraordinarily hands-on day-to-day. Um, so we're not doing things like listening to earnings conference calls and trading stocks, and um, we're, we're trying to do things that are rules-based and that have a, a basis in um, academic research, literature and, and our own research and things that a reasonable outsider would look at and say, yeah, they're doing the right thing. Do you make opportunistic investments? I mean, does the market do something that causes you to say, hey, this sector is wildly undervalued, we're going to overweight it, or is it just rules-based and that's that? Yeah, no. I mean, rebalancing, do obviously. Yeah, we'll do an opportunistic rebalance, which we did this year, actually. Um, and then our our client portfolios are, are very rarely all-in-one strategy. So we run a, a tactical model in-house um, but it, it's making shifts between stocks and bonds based on rules. So like Barry's, Barry's uh, gut instinct doesn't apply. My own feelings don't apply. I, already, I did that already. I already know it doesn't work. And I know everyone else that does that. There are like five superstar hedge fund managers who can do that regularly. And then millions of other people who fail at it. So I, I'm not going to be one of the five, right? So we keep our opinions out of it. We build strategies with rules set out in advance in times of low emotion so that in times of high emotion, a lot of money being either made or lost, we, we can't override those things based on our, our feelings or, um, or our instincts. You know, I opened this up talking to you about how uncertain I am of myself right now. Now imagine I were making buy and sell decisions in the market with, with those feelings that I'm having of my own. How could that not transfer? Of course it would, right? Any human being who's in a funk or, or maybe feeling really confident because um, something great happened to them, those feelings transfer into the other things they do. And if one of those other things they do is make bullish or bearish calls on the market with other people's money, then you have a recipe for disaster. So we, we really try to limit uh, those opportunistic kind of market calls and so far, so good. You know, um, we, we've 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 done a pretty good job so far. So uh, I don't think that we would ever make a change there. So in your in your indexing, um, are you using just standard cap weighted index funds? Are you doing anything else like a DFA kind of approach? Are you uh, you know are you overweight growth value uh, international versus U.S. because it's cheaper? Uh, how are you thinking about that? Or U.S. because it's over international because it seems to be doing better? So in in strategic uh, model, which is like let's say typically seventy or eighty percent of of a client's total portfolio with us. Um, we'll use DFA, we'll use Vanguard, we'll use iShares, we'll use State Street. The, the, the idea is to get the asset class um, in the right proportion and then to pick the right vehicle. Um, we've, we've had a really, so here's something we did that was opportunistic this year. Uh, in 2019, we were sitting on huge capital gains in almost every, in almost every asset class, you know, and then by, Feb, by late February, those capital gains were, were almost gone, and then by March, they were gone. So we've been doing more direct indexing. The problem with direct indexing adoption for us has been the tax consequences, and we're fiduciaries. So we can't just be like, 
ETFs are great. Direct indexing is better. Let's wipe out the CTF portfolio and go into uh, a direct index model because then you're incurring incurring massive uh, short-term embedded tax liabilities. So that presented us with a really amazing opportunity. And we were able to move like $60 million onto a direct indexing platform worth of client money without taking tax, taxable gains coming out of the all ETF model. Um, do direct indexes make sense for every account, every situation? No, but we have clients where it does. Think about uh, a client who lives in, uh, you know, think about a client who lives in Northern California, works for Facebook, net worth $8 million, $5 million of that is in Facebook stock. I can't buy that client the Qs with a straight face. I'm just giving them more Facebook. Facebook is 2% of the S&P. It's bigger in the queues. So direct indexing gives you a way to build an index approach for that client in a very technologically savvy way in that you can screen out securities that your your client is already overly exposed to. Um, Think about a client in the oil sector. They already have so much exposure to the ups and downs of the oil and gas business, mostly downs uh, these days. So having the ability to um, do direct indexing is great. The problem is 2017, the market goes up 27%. 2018, it's, it's essentially flat, down 5%. 2019, it's up 30%. So you have these huge long-term capital gains embedded. All of a sudden, you get this opportunity in March and April to transition people into direct indexing. So we've been keeping ourselves busy with projects like that on an account-by-account basis. And it's a lot of work to, to make those conversions and speak with clients, and do paperwork. But somehow, working across the firm, all different people involved, we're getting those things done. Uh, we've sort of defaulted to equity discussion here, which is natural uh, for Barron's people and CNBC people. But uh, I do want to ask you about fixed income, which is obviously in a bizarre place right now, never before seen. Uh, are you just doing straight indexing there? Or how are you handling your fixed income portfolios? Well, no. So um, municipal bonds, we, we're, at, we're actually active, but it's not us. It's an SMA. Um, but it's a group that has been doing this for decades, and uh, uh, they're a boutique firm. I, I, I don't, I, t- I try not to talk about them too much publicly because they don't want publicity. But they do custom tailored portfolios for our clients, meaning literally specifically based on where the client lives and what they need um, in in terms of income. So we're not touching. Thank God, you don't want Barry and I picking. Uh, Muni bonds, Jack, believe me. Um, I would never have a guy from Long Island pick me a municipal bond. I'm sorry, but, you know, Nassau County just has a bad rep in that that regard. Listen, if you want to know uh, where to get the best Chinese or if you want to know about Italian sandwiches, that's what you ask me for. You don't want to pick muni bonds. (laughs) So um, so from a a fixed income perspective, I I agree with a lot of the people saying that the next leg of this crisis – could involve municipal finance and and states and and local governments that have been just they've seen revenue just drop off substantially. Keep in mind, uh, it's it's sales tax that fuels a lot of these economies, and there aren't any sales outside grocery stores. Um, you have people not working. You have massive unemployment claims. Um, you have public facilities that normally collect tolls or or tickets or whatever. Just there's nothing happening, um, and at the same time. Their houses weren't in order to begin with, right? You had massive shortfalls and, and pension issues um, and promises that were made in prior generations that have only gotten more exacerbated. So I do think that municipals is an area where being active probably pays off, right? And it's not about which credits do you buy. I think in the way that we do it, it's which credits don't you buy, right? And 
especially when you think about a wealth management account that's got municipal bond exposure, they're not there for substantial upside. They're there to protect principal and have a tax-free uh, stream of returns coming to them that's different from stocks. So uh, that's how we're looking at that. I don't have a view on treasury yields. I don't really have a view on uh, I don't really have a view on where, where interest rates will go, should go. Is the Fed bad or are they great? Are they antichrist? I, it's just not an area that that I, I spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, again, our job is to build portfolios that are durable enough to survive any environment. Um, our job is not to berate, you know, Jerome Powell. That's that's someone else's job. Uh, I, I want to ask you one bigger picture. Uh investing question because it's been on my mind and and I'm trying to come to a conclusion when when you look at the secular disruption that was changing the world before COVID-19 and in some ways I think this whole crisis is actually accelerating some of those changes and then I wonder, okay, to what extent has Mr. Market priced this in? Obviously, you look at retail stocks and others, they've gotten hammered, but have they gotten hammered enough? You know, are value investors waiting for things to mean revert going to be sitting there for the rest of their life and more? Um, do you guys worry about that at all? You know, is, is maybe that 2% position in Facebook, obviously not right for the guy whose entire portfolio is in Facebook, but does that maybe reflect that that platform is going to be a larger part of an asset light economy for the rest of our lives? Well, we think it will, but I don't think we know for sure that it will be Facebook. Um, right. Like, and, and so there's a great George Orwell quote where he says, um, right now, whoever is winning will appear to be invincible. So right now, it appears that Instagram just will never be dislodged. But then if you have teenagers or even younger, they care way more about what's going on in TikTok than they do on Instagram. And Instagram almost becomes like something they keep up so their parents can follow what they're doing. And then TikTok, their parents don't even dare venture in there. Um, and so like, I feel like, I feel like it would be a mistake to say that Facebook itself will always be a part. I mean, it's conceivable that it could. So I think the bigger question is like, do traditional measurements of the economy or evaluation, do they have any place in the modern era. So exactly. I've, been, I've been screaming for 10 years that I don't think they do. And so far, I'm right. So I think market share matters more than price to book. I think book is irrelevant when it doesn't capture brand. And brand is so important. So like, I've written a thousand blog posts about this topic. And so far, and every time I hit publish, someone says, oh, this time it's different, blah, blah, blah. Well, they're all wrong. They're still wrong. And the one thing that we kept hearing, and by the way, all these criticisms are criticisms of index portfolios because people would say, oh, you're putting your clients in Vanguard Index. Well, you're just giving them overexposure to Apple and Amazon. And so that's the thing that people kept saying. And then the coda was always, you'll see, wait till the next bear market, wait till the next financial crisis, you'll see those stocks are going to get destroyed. And of course, the opposite has happened. Every other stock has gotten destroyed. And the biggest market caps, um, the most overloved growth stocks, they've actually recovered the fastest and they seem to be doing the best in actual practice. So this gets back to why it's so hard to do something other than try to give people um, market weight representation in the averages. It's just really, really hard. Um, a lot of the, the things that we've seen happen in the last 30 days since the market bottomed in late March have been counterintuitive. Yeah, exactly. But so uh, so you're answering my question by saying you're 
happy allowing the um, the, the cap weighted index to give you that ever growing exposure rather than trying to avoid retail or energy or, or, or whatever, because you'll naturally be, you know, Jack Bogle uh, they don't matter. Said, it, said it best. They don't matter. There are seven yeah. retailers that have a, a real market cap. Yeah. Costco, yeah. Kroger, Walmart, Target. Like, we know who sure. they are. Yeah. You, so people are like, oh, you buy the index, you have exposure to Macy's. Do I? <laughs> what's, the, what's the market cap? A billion dollars? Do I have exposure? Um, oil and gas. It's 2.5% of the S&P. It could double and still not matter to, to the overall index. So now the question is, are people that own the index overconfident in Microsoft, Facebook, Amazon app? Maybe. But here's the beauty, here's the beauty of, of the system. It's, it's very true that those stocks, it might turn out, are not doing as well as people think they are and stumble in the second half of the year. But then the second best performing sector is healthcare. And healthcare is not as big as tech, but it could be. You give me a six-month stretch where the XLK uh, falls and the XLV rises, then all of a sudden, oh, the market's not dominated by tech. Now we're going to complain it's dominated by healthcare. Well, healthcare is the sixth of the economy, so maybe it should be. So my argument is not, no, I think Facebook's great forever. I'm saying that companies rise and fall. And Whenever I hear about people saying, oh, the index is just pumping up the same five stocks, the same. so please explain GE to me. GE lost $180 billion worth of market cap. How is that possible? It was in the top 10 at the start of this whole indexing uh, mania, whatever you want to call it. So, how, so explain to me why GE didn't get pumped up. Why is Exxon not in the top 10 anymore? Why isn't, you know, why isn't Berkshire Hathaway? Because there's movement within the top 10 which is proof that active managers are still setting price and index buying or selling is not deciding winners and losers in corporate America. So it's very possible that an index approach has you um, overweight stocks that are already very big and missing opportunities elsewhere. That's possible, but it's also possible new companies arise to take these companies' place and the top 10 look very different a decade from now. And just about every active manager has that same overweight uh, if he or she has been successful anyway. Uh, the R squared of, of most active managers is pretty close to 100. Well, yeah, you could be, if you want, you could say we're making active bets and we don't own Amazon and Apple. Okay, very tough though, <laughs> right? So I hope you found something else to be overweight that's done as well and that can do as well in the future. Uh, that's the game. And some people will be able to do it. Most people won't. And to some people that are able to do it, you can't pick them in advance anyway. So, so like, I, I love active management. I buy and sell stocks for my, for my, my own uh, account sometimes. Um, but you can't identify a, a, an outperforming manager in advance. Then, what's, you know, then what are you betting on? So that, that's – I'm not anti-active management. I'm pro-active management. I, I, I love the stories of people that managed to crush the market. But the persistence study for me is the, is, is the, is the most damning uh, thing, and, and it's the reason why we don't play that game because we don't think we would be any better than you are at figuring out who's, who's going to get hot in mid-cap growth next year. I can't do it. So Josh Brown, uh, we could go on all day, but I got to get – let you go. Uh, let our listeners go. Um, I really appreciate it. I, I hope you 
you get through all this and everyone does uh, and feel a little bit better, uh, uh, you're doing good work. Thank you, Jack. It's great talking to you. I appreciate it. I uh, thank everyone for listening to this episode of The Way Forward. Our next call will be on Friday. That's May Day at 1 p.m. with David Hammer of PIMCO to discuss munis and whether they make sense in today's market. We'll see you there. This podcast is brought to you by ClearBridge Investments. Meet an evolving economy confidently with ClearBridge Active Equities, the foundation of a resilient portfolio. ClearBridge, a Franklin Templeton company. Go to clearbridge.com to learn more.